Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcasts. Reloading the Matrix hurts way more than watching Freddy vs. Jason while sober. I think I'm gonna help. Better make contact with the guys back in the real world. That's a problem. What could be so important that they need to be on the phone right this very second? And I would advise anyone who hasn't seen it see Paddington because it is charming. Yes, I've heard that uh, there's a he, lot of... It is actually um, a cut above a lot of children's films. It's got... It's it's very good. Hey, guys. I'm in. We'll try to find contact. Send. Why do you speak to yourself? Shit! Oh. oh, you scared me. Hey, is your name... Nemo, by any chance? Yes. Well, that was easier than expected. Bad Boys 2 was a fine film, don't you think? Huh? What? Oh, the code phrases. <clears throat> yes, but Pirates of the Caribbean had ghosts. I think the world needs another Lara Croft movie. Why base a film on a video game when you have hilarious adverts about credit cards starring Rowan Atkinson to choose from? Once Upon a Time in Mexico was filmed in six weeks, you know. That's almost as long as it takes to watch the endings of Return of the King. Ah, forgive my trial by passwords. I had to be sure it was you. Big Bay has clones everywhere. Yes, I've seen SWAT. So you wish to meet with the spoiler lady? Yes. Now I have a question I must ask if we are to stand any chance in our epic battle with Big Bay. I will take you to her. But first... Ow! Ow! No! Stop! Ah! Oh, my face! Oh! Ah! Oh, my balls! Shit! Why? Oh, please! Ah! Enough! Holy shit! Blue on blue, Nemo! I'm Big Bay Resistance! Why did you hit me? We have a saying here. You do not know someone until you fight them. Whatever happened to the art of conversation? You violent retard! When you make someone angry... You see who they really are. I now know you are a flabby wimp. Well, I hope you try that crap with Bruce Banner, asshole. Now, I will take you to Spoiler Lady. This way, to this door. Well, after you then. What you learn is for you only. Yeah, well, you better not kick me from behind. I'm in no mood for... Cookies? I just made them. Um, depends. Am I still a type 2 diabetic even when I'm in the Matrix? Yes, I know you will refuse. As a result, I was just being polite. Well, that's grand. Hey, um, 
since you know the future and everything, uh, could you... Tell you how this ends? Well, uh, more like how to win. How to win. Do you think you can change the end? As Terminator 2 made clear, there's no fate except that which we make. And as Terminator 3 made clear, sometimes you just have to let really horrific bad things happen with a sense of unavoidable fatalism. Well, seeing as you've got all the answers, please just lay it out for me. Do we, can we beat Big Bay? Hmm, interesting. Let's see if I can give you an answer. First, come over here. I want to get to know you a bit better. Of course. Now I understand. Ah! Bruce Almighty, you hit me right in the snozzer. Oh, sorry. Weren't you ready? What's wrong with you? I thought you wanted to get to know me better. So we fight, you know... I was um... going to read you your palms, you idiot. Oh, sorry. This has been a terrible misunderstanding. Ah, my eyes are watering. Everything's blurry. Oh, Oh, crikey. I'm... I'm so sorry. I feel, I feel terrible about this. I'm going to set my blind lawyer on you. Litigation. That's your future. Oh, 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 please don't be angry. My nose is bleeding. Get my handbag, would you? I need a tissue from it. What? Is this it? Thanks. Taste that! Uh, now we're even dipshit. Get out of my apartment. Hey! Well, I f***ed that up. (laughs) Gentlemen, as I emerge from the Batrix, I must report a problem. The spoily lady turned out to be a bit of a bust for a number of reasons, and she will not be advising us in the future. However, all is not lost. I stole her handbag. Now, let's see what we have here. Oh... But a note saying the next thing Leah would do is start a discussion on the films of 2003. Hmm. Uh, tell me, Leo, is there something you'd like to talk about? <laughs> uh, yes, Ian, there is something I would like to talk about. I seem to remember that 2003 uh, was a year of uh, somewhat disappointing endings. Uh, the things that stand out in my head, uh, I don't know, I mean, the end of Lord of the Rings isn't disappointing so much as it is long, and maybe uh, it would behoove us to get that out of the way, or at least for you to get that out of the way. I, I really don't have much to add to any discussion on that. But I also remember that 2003 is a year in which one day I decided to go to the cinema and just pig out on cinematic joy, and I did a double bill of identity and basic. I can't remember which way round it was, but whichever one I saw first, I kind of went, oh, that was awful. I need a palate cleanse. I went to the other one and went, oh my god, this is just as bad, if not worse. So, yeah, uh, not a, uh, those are the things that I, I really stand out in my mind as... as uh, oh, and of course Hulk was out, so that was disappointing throughout. So, uh, yeah, uh, there were... It's not that they were bad films, but there, there were some stinkers, uh, or at least things where you came out and just went, oh, really? Have I just spent two hours of my life doing that? Uh, uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's what stands in my mind from 2003. But, uh, of course, you two are Lord of the Rings fans, so obviously you were all made up, right? Yeah, well, that, remember, that's going to happen at the end of the year. I mean, all these disappointments are happening over the summer. So looking back here, I'm thinking, hmm, actually, I wasn't enjoying the cinema much, I have to say, 
during most of it, and then it picks up towards Christmas. Mm. Oh, fair enough. Uh, yes, I, that was kind of my impression when I was reviewing the list of the films. I was saying to Lee, not, many, not much jumps out. I don't mean the sense there's not much here to talk about, but not much jumps out and goes, this was good. Um, I think X2 was a bit of a highlight for me. And yeah. I'm versed in the universe more than the average person of Lords of the Rings. And certainly I felt Return of the King was a satisfactory end to the trilogy. I felt Lords of the Rings is now being done and done so satisfactory. No one need ever make another Lords of the Rings film ever again. It was fine. It was all fine. I, th- I think they, uh, there's a few things where they milked it a little bit, but not too much. I think leaving out Christopher Lee from the theatrical release completely was utterly ridiculous because the showdown is all of five minutes right at the start of the film. It's not as if nothing else was in the film that couldn't be cut or we, we couldn't have endured five more minutes of uh, Christopher Lee, thank you very much. It always struck me as a very bizarre cut. People said this is topical for the time. It was like storming Iraq and not being able to find Saddam, which was a thing at the time. Mm. Where is he? We don't even see him under lock and key. He's just, we just get Gandalf going, well, oh, I'm sure he's all taken care of. I suppose it, it wraps it all up. Frodo and Samway's finally finished their three-film walk and then yeah, immediately I mean, get, I... get birds and go home. <laughs> um, I mean, I really loved it. And I, I think, yes, uh, I know it's a bit long, but my God, uh, it wasn't quite as long as what is to follow from Peter Jackson. Oh, so um, he was just getting into his stride of overly long films at this stage. Uh, <laughs> at least it was all, you know, actual, you know, plot that was in the books. And I just found, I know people complain about the, the, the kind of the multiple endings. For me, the, the, the thing that stands out about Lord of the Rings, all the three films, as opposed to The Hobbit, is the fact that it's, it's a very emotional film about the characters in it and the friendships. And so it was a ve- it ended on a very, eventually ended on a very kind of emotional, uh, moment so that I kind of I'm pleased actually because it personally because that was satisfying as as the end to it finally uh, and I, I I mean I enjoyed it and I I watched all the extended versions and loved them so so yes this was very much the high point of the year for me uh, and a kind of a sadness going oh well I'm not going to be coming to the cinema uh, every every December for my for my Lord of the Rings fix oh, so. just you wait there's more Tolkien to come and aren't you excited um yes <laughs> <laughs> tell me Leo as as someone who's simply this is just another form of entertainment rather than anything you're passionate or overly interested in uh, do you think the film should have just faded to credits when everyone said no we bow to you hobbits and we didn't um all the additional coders no I, I right okay here's the thing before the first one came out, I mean, I went out and I bought the books because the thing is, it's one of those things. I guess you, you would, you know, I was, um, you know, in my mid twenties. I'd never really read Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'd read Hobbit when I was a kid and people kept saying, banging on about how great it was. And now we were going to get this ultimate film adaptation. And, uh, what Peter Jackson did for me, uh, in, in the, you know, years of this, this film coming out was he managed to tell me that Lord of the Rings was nothing particularly special. Not, I mean, in terms of the fact that it, it, you know, its impact on the world of literature cannot be understated. But in and of itself, it's like I'm a massive H.P. Lovecraft fan, but even I have to say he's a terrible writer. He's he's really bad, but I'm a big fan of his, and and so I I have to with you know say I really like that because I like his ideas, and I'm I'm intrigued by the fact that his impact on the business came a lot later than you know anyone else's. 
uh, there's a, you know, and at the end of the day, uh, J.R. Tolkien, I don't care about, I don't hate it, but I just don't care about it. There's a lot of sausages in that, uh, in that trilogy, there's a lot of people having breakfast, or at least that's the bit. That's the oh, sorry. The I, thought, I, I thought you were referring to the overly male cast of the book, but no, you're talking <laughs> about genuinely all the sausages they're eating. No, no. Well, I think I think there's a thing because uh, it was written uh, during uh, wartime, a time of privation. That uh, in addition to having these kind of dreamy moments of describing vast amounts of landscape. Uh, sort of doing, really literally trying to do a picture in a thousand words rather than actually drawing a picture. He also does this thing of getting into a thing where he goes, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have some bacon and a couple of eggs or fried bread like that? And he just, uh, and he writes it down because he's having a moment where it's like, well, we're unrationing and, and it's like, okay. Uh, if something else had caused the fantasy kick and he wrote the books today and submitted them, I think like he kind of intended, they'd sort of be self-published. They'd be like, well, you know, people would be like, why is all the, there all this landscape? Why are there all these breakfasts? I don't really, it's a bit dense, but that's not the way it, it fell out. So I watched the films. I was like, okay, I know what happens. I don't think I'm missing anything. And I moved on. I did read the fellowship and, um, 200 pages of the two towers. But there was a point at which I was just like, I cannot do this anymore. And so I, you know, I watched the movies and, and it's been done. And I've never, and I even, I got the extended editions. I borrowed them off someone, I think, and tried to sit through them. And I fell asleep during the fellowship because I was just, and I've fallen asleep during the Hobbit, the first Hobbit movie as well. I, every time I put it on, it's just a recipe for falling asleep. So I just don't bother. But surely it was the model uh, for how we should handle the hobbits. No, carry on. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think they get better, though, in the, in the trilogy. I mean, I think the, the Fellowship takes its time and the other ones kind of kick off. I mean, I lapped it all up. I mean, I, for me, it's just like Tolkien went, well, there you go, you don't have to read these books. It's all here. Thank you very much. That's the biggest gift he was given anyone, I think. Uh, this is not the case with The Hobbit, but... Um, uh, yeah. I yeah, mean, the I, the I, Hobbit I, is casting, know. because it's topical right now, The Hobbit is casting a very <laughs> disturbing shadow. Has has The Hobbit tainted Lords of the Rings? Is it like the prequel no, trilogy? You could say the same about the Star Wars prequels. You can just not watch it. I mean, it's, <laughs> you don't have to... I mean, if it had been, you know, faithful to the book, then it would have been a nice appetizer before the main feast... Um, but actually what you get is a rather stodgy meal that leaves you kind of, um, no, I'm just, I'll leave, I'll leave those last three. Uh, yes. But then after a while, you can just go, actually, let's just skip to the main, you know, let's just, let's just not have that, that ridiculous starter. And in, in some ways it's better if you don't actually, I think, um, because it's kind of tonally strange and odd and it doesn't quite work. I know no. someone said, uh, some of my friends was like, oh, yeah, I, I've never seen Lord of the Rings, so I think I'm going to, I'm going to watch The Hobbit first. And I said, no! Tell them, just like, watch it, because I think you'll never get through Lord of the Rings if you sit through The Hobbit. I think you'll give up. I think you'll just like, oh god, not another three films, and these ones appear to be longer. I, I, I think they, they exist now, The Hobbit films, and that's fine. But you can treat the Lord of the Rings as their own thing. I don't think they're set in a different time. I don't think it matters. So there we go. We've uh, Lord of the Rings and Hobbited all the way to the end of that uh, particular thing. Uh, but you mentioned, Ian, that uh, this was the year of um, X2, or as it 
I don't believe it was called this at the time, but in, in, in retrospect, they've called it X2 X-Men United, uh, because mm. they started a five-a-side football team during that. Yeah. Uh, now, I, and, I, I always thought it was just called X-Men 2, but, but this whole X2 thought, uh, I thought it was just market, a marketing thing. But no, apparently this is the official name, X2. So you look okay. at that and go, what's this about? It's X-Men, you idiots. It's, otherwise it sounds like it's some sort of prequel to Triple X or something. Yes, it's about a, a, yeah, a, a secret agent who's pretty good at skateboarding, yeah. uh, but he hasn't got that extra X yet. That would really <laughs> Starts to wear pads and a, and a helmet. Yeah. A riveting film about the two times table, it could also be. But... <laughs> well, of course, we are in the era of maths uh, sci-fi, or yeah. towards the yeah. tail end of it anyway, so yes, that could happen. Uh, if, I, if I might gush, uh, X-Men 2, you and I, Leo, I think we had, we had a, a passionate love affair with this movie when it first came out, and it kind of blew our minds. At the time, I caught it, because the point is that Spider-Man was Spider-Man, it was the origin of Spider-Man, Peter Parker gets bit by a spider, Green Goblin, blah, you know, and that's fine, good, yeah, and X-Men was kind of like, introducing the X-Men, here's X-Men 1, and here's X-Men Bob, and here's X-Men Dave, and uh, don't let the ladies out, here's X-Men Suzanne, and here's X-Men, you know, that's, that's, that's how the X-Men was. X2 was our first sequel in this kind of new area of superhero movies where they didn't need to bother introducing anybody they just got the hell on with doing some superhero-y type stuff and for that i dubbed it the best superhero movie to be made so far and looked forward because it was the early one it came out april may and looked forward immensely to what uh, ang lee was going to do with hulk but we'll get on to that in a bit <laughs> I remember being, you know, because the, the the X people get a really bad hammering by the bad guys, and they're scattered and they're hunted, and of course, you know, it, it's normals versus mutants, and so I was so gleeful and overjoyed when Magneto was let out of his box. It was like, yeah, go sick of Magneto. So yes, that was I. I really enjoyed the prison escape sequence, although I've heard it's completely unfeasible to put that much of iron in somebody and not have them fall over with serious medical in, medical complaints. Uh, but yes, a joy from begin to end. Look again, they have to sideline the Professor X problem. They have to sideline Professor X for a large part of the movie. Cyclops uh, gets taken out, which is a shame because he gets taken out again in X Men Three. Uh, so his character kind of fizzles away, really, at this point onwards. And this is the high point, I think, for a lot of people. This was, this is, it, X-Men 3 was so disappointing. It's, it's almost, you know, we're gleeful it's been retconned out of existence. Spoilers, uh, by other more recent films. But X-Men 2 was, was brilliant. And again, Wolverine front and center. What an enjoyable character. Yeah, in retrospect, <laughs> he said, because uh, when one of them came out that was likely to be all right, I think it might have been first class or something, I don't know, Sue said to me, oh, I've never seen any of the X-Men movies. Like, I said, well, not, not one of them. She said, no, I've not seen any of them. So we got the full, you know, everything up to that point, inclu- excluding Origins Wolverine, uh, of <laughs> course, out of the local blockbuster, and we just put them on back to back. And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry about that. And not a lot happens, really. I mean, a lot happens, but it kind of, it's, it's oddly paced in retrospect. I mean, if you compare X2 to the Avengers, you're like, yeah, there's still a little bit 
you really we don't have to explain who these guys are you sure i mean i'll just slow it down a bit maybe people need a moment to, maybe they'll have forgotten i mean you know the other one was like three years ago uh can't guarantee they've watched the dvd of the first one in preparation we'll just take it slow you know and they do that yeah it's got this really odd kind of clunky pacing where it's like they're afraid to just go we're not explaining any of this to any of you if you haven't seen the first one screw you they don't they don't do that which they do now all the time you know you go and see winter soldier and you haven't seen any you know either the avengers or captain america you've got characters you don't know who they are you've got character relationships you don't know what they mean uh you know if you were to just see the winter soldier you wouldn't really know why it was such a big deal that uh, nick fury was supposed to be dead you know just it's crazy you know they don't make any apology now whereas x2 is quite apologetic yeah it starts off with a science fair where they go through the whole leap of evolution thing again uh and so you're saying there's, there's quite a lot of time that elapses until the school gets attacked is what you're saying and then and then thereafter it kind of and I, yeah i think this is the other thing it X-Men are quite difficult. It is, I mean, it was quite a difficult proposition. It's quite a surprise, really, that this is one of the big franchises because it, it's an ensemble cast. And, you know, Hollywood is, is, is built on people who don't play well with sharing the credit with other people. And so ensemble things tend to be, you know, like the director is famous for, uh, doing ensemble pieces, uh, like Robert Altman. And so doing an ensemble superhero movie, I think it was just a thing where it's like, well, this is, this is a bit difficult. We don't, we, you know, we don't know how to, you know, iron the lumps out of it. And, and I, it is, you know, to this day, it does seem a bit clumsy in retrospect, but at the time it was a jolly good effort. I mean, you know, his, I think if you showed it to someone new today who is used to today's, a young person, grab a random young person and say, watch this, and they'd not seen it before because they haven't got around to it. They'd be like, wow, this is a bit odd. They haven't really made this very well. It gets slated today. The thing is, we're we're still, you know, at the dawn of the kind of decent superhero film. Indeed. And so we've only just had Spider-Man, which kind of, you know, and X-Men and Spider-Man kind of, as we've said before, really kind of changed that ballgame. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I watched it and enjoyed it, but I would certainly, if I'm looking back now, definitely would say, like, it's not one of my favourite superhero films. But, you know, there, it was a return of uh, characters that we enjoyed. You know, people do like Wolverine, uh, Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. So, um, yeah, it was carrying on that. But, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it's probably not something I'll return to and go, wow, that was fantastic. At this stage, that franchise hadn't been tainted it, it catches you by surprise when the Days of Future Past came out last year. And then you go, oh, well, there's actually X-Men, X-Men 2, X-Men 3, Origins Wolverine, mm. The Wolverine, X-Men First Class, and now this, and then we're going to do Apocalypse. That's a massive franchise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's bankable. It keeps coming years. back, doesn't it? I was going to say, we, just to finish off, we're quite lucky that X, the X-Men First Class was as okay as it was. I don't think it was brilliant. I thought it was, it was, it was an improvement on the stuff we'd had before. But it showed it, hope, really, I think. It was, a, you know, it showed that you could actually do something. It, all the rest, all the ingredients were there for this to be a terrible film because it was a rush through script, last minute commission, throwing the actors together, there's a director, off you go, boom. We're lucky it came together as well as it did. It could have been another Wolverine Origins very easily. Mm. All the same conditions were there. And I think that, that basically 
it gave some life back to the franchise after some after two very dismal films. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got my own thoughts on X3. Uh, and in fact, uh, kind of the existence of the later movies, because uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine did nothing, for my opinion, has kind of vindicated it. Uh, but I, I'll probably save that for when we get to X3, to be honest. Yeah. If we're going to talk about a three, we've, and, and, and being as we've now taken that sort of... Uh, Wrong turn. Uh, I've, I've now mentioned wrong turn, so we can move straight on into the uh, avenue of disappointment. Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, which you've already managed to bash in the opening skitty. And, but uh, let's uh, re- restate that bashing just so that we can all have a good kick. <laughs> well, the, my point in the skit was, you know, there's no future except that which you make. Whereas in the second film, it's like, uh, maybe we should just stay here and do nothing whilst the atom bombs rain down across the world. Uh, and, and again, what is this thing about you have Cameron, you know, he makes aliens. Everyone says aliens is good. Well, most people say aliens is good. And then aliens, he comes along and kills everyone and undoes everything he'd set up. It's the same thing happens with Terminator 3. It completely undoes Terminator yeah. 2. You can, it short circuits Terminator 2. You can go from 1 to 3 if you want to, with a few minor changes. Uh, again, I get the feeling this film was genuinely made as, as, as Schwarzenegger's bid to be governor of California. Uh, and right. I, I know Vox Pops are always selected to be either the most moronic comments people make, but someone did actually say, well, I liked his last film, so I voted for him. Uh, mm. let, us, let us take a quick moment to quickly gaze an eye over Schwarzenegger's career since Terminator 2. It's dismal. Apart from true lies, it's dismal. Last Action Hero, mm. Junior, Eraser, Jingle All the Way, Batman and Robin, End of Day, Sixth Day... Oh, collateral damage. That's embarrassing. So he, he really mm. has had just the doldrums for a very long time. So you can understand why he was looking for a second career to, to be loved in. Terminator 3, camera's like, oh, I got nothing. You guys can play with it if you like. And, uh, they very duly just have to go with the conceit of Skynet happens again, but later this time in a new timeline. And, uh, I, I do believe they tried to get Eddie Furlong, but he was a bit drugged up at the time, so they kind of paid him off and nudged him off, off away from the set and hired somebody else who, yeah, fine. I have a friend who really likes Terminator 3. He watches it quite a lot. I don't know why. Uh, no. Schwarzenegger's justification for the Terminatrix, we've, we've never seen a female Terminator, and him fighting a, a, a super, a model was like, we haven't seen that image before, we haven't seen a supermodel throwing the Terminator around a toilet and bashing his head into, into basins, that, that's awesome. Oh dear. I'm gonna tap well, the, you, Justin. I, mean, I think going. fundamentally the flaw is that the Terminator is worse than the Terminator 2 Terminator, surely. The Dominatrix is... Is not Dominatrix. As, I like the fact that yes. Oh, Terminatrix. Sorry, not Dominatrix. But she, she, she's oh, the one not, she dresses not in as, as 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 the T three thousand, whatever it's called. I don't know. I think it annoys me because it messes around so much with the central. You know, like we save the day, and then we're like, oh no, it's all gone horrible again. Yeah. And like, oh well, that's a that's not what I want to end the film on. That's a real downer. And also, Arnold Schwarzenegger at this stage is beginning to look a little bit wrong for the role like he's just looking too old you're good you're you know, looking for terminator like, genesis oh, then. he's like he's embodying the franchise at this point he's kind of like you're looking old and not really in touch with what's going on and it's not really it's beginning to fall apart so you're saying this is the perfect time to put the parachute van diesel into the terminator role and forget schwarzenegger altogether or something does not do terminator i mean <laughs> i think basically it's, you know, do something else or come up with a way where you can do, you know, something different. But at this stage, trying to rehash things 
it's just not working. It's just, you know, and again, and then to, to kind of piss all over something that people love is mm. just a crime, right? It's a cinematic crime, so... Yes, uh, Sarah Connor dies tragically of leukemia. Sorry, everyone. Uh, were you hoping she had a nice future after winning the second film? She didn't. She died. Cancer. Sorry. That's where it goes. Little things bug me. The Terminatrix can put nanomachines into machinery, which makes them remote-controlled and evil. So cars start mm. up and start chasing people around. I'm thinking, how are the nanomachines turning the wheel and pressing the accelerator? Um, I maybe I'm thinking too much about this. I probably am. Maybe I'm nitpicking because I had a certain resistance going in. Leo, do you do you want to do a, a finishing coup de grace on this at all? Uh, well, it, it's certainly true that uh, the new Terminator, uh, despite being a supermodel, you can't follow the T1000. I mean, this is what I thought going in. I thought, you know, that shape-shifting blob of metal that was totally evil. How do you one-up that? I mean, that was kind of the ultimate. I can't think of anything. And indeed, neither could they, so they didn't even bother. I'm sure if you thought about it long enough, you could really think of something. But this isn't it. Um, well, she was kind and, of a hybrid it, because she had a kind of skin. Skin like the T one thousand that could shape shift, uh, but she was still she was a machine in the middle, and she was built uh, to, she was built to destroy Terminators. That's her job. Meh. Yes. Uh, right. <laughs> okay. Look, the point is that uh, it's like Terminator. Ooh, Terminator two. Ah, oh, Terminator three. Ah, happened. Should we go and get a hamburger? Mm. You know, in in a way, that's exactly how people uh, reacted to the X Men trilogy as well. It's like that third movie, and indeed Spider Man trilogies at this time were cursed. That's just the way it is, I'm afraid. Uh, so, seeing as we're here in this in this valley uh, of disappointment, I think that uh, we could probably take a, a moment to look at well. Let's get it over and done with, because I had to watch... Well, I didn't have to, but I chose to, because I'd never seen it before, watch for this show, Freddy vs. Jason, which we kind of uh, touched on in our horror moan last week. But let's just uh, let's just go, yeah, this was disappointing. Uh, we were disappointed uh, by this. I, I have to ask the question, Leo. What exactly were you expecting? Well, OK, it wasn't disappointing. It was exactly what I expected. It was disappointing when the... Pop- I think what... This is what it is. Freddie and Jason had gone their own way and gone downhill and gone in there, and then they brought out a poster saying, hey, Freddie versus Jason is coming. That's when the disappointment set in. It didn't change. It may have got deeper, maybe, but the mere fact they were doing it was the disappointment. Sorry, that was... that was. It's like Aliens versus Predator, isn't it? Is that this year? Or is it no, next no, no, year? it's a bit, next it's a bit later. But it's, it's, it's a big thing. It's two franchises that are kind of just really devalued so smush them together for a kind of a, a crowd-pleasing bash them up the cruelty of alien versus predator is that aliens versus predator was a popular comic and a popular and, and well-liked comic and a popular and well-liked video game franchise so when they made a movie of it they were like well it already exists and could be good and there was no point at which anyone was like, hey, do you know what these two horror franchises need? They need to be in the same universe, played off against one another. That's what they... Nobody said that. The only people who said that were people who were looking, mm, the overdraft's getting a bit deep, isn't it? Uh, what properties do we own that we could uh, make Milk. some easy cash yeah. off? Well, yeah, it, exactly. So it's, a, it's a like a, a, a sort of Friday the 13th, uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street cinematic universe now. My mind is boggling. 
well, in that universe, of course, the two places which are, are geographically located, not next to each other. People who've watched Friday the 13th series and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, who unfortunately for the producers of this movie happen to be the same people quite a lot, they know that these two places are not next to each other on the map because they have, at points, been geographically located in the United States. It's a little bit like if uh, someone made uh, a famous Scottish horror movie and a famous Cornish horror movie and then went, oh, no, they haven't around the corner from one another. No, they didn't. They happen in completely different places and you can't just drive from one to the other in 20 minutes like you can in this movie. So the movie, even in its basic form, fails, like really badly fails. Um, and but, it just but, continues to fail there on in. But did you enjoy in. the itchy versus scratchy combat between our two villains? Yes, I did. Enjoy. I, I mean, it was fine. You know, it happened. It wasn't enough. To, I mean, what surprised me, the bit that really surprised me, it's like, I'm already disappointed in you, but what's surprising me in addition to my disappointment is that they put so much plot in at the beginning. It's like, really? You're going to put plot in this this movie? You feel a bit like you should take the writers of this, shift them forward in time, but go, here's a little film we like to call Crank. Make your Freddy versus Jason movie just like this movie. See, the plot of Crank happens in the first three minutes. After that, it's all gravy. That's how Freddy versus Jason be. Instead of which you get 40 minutes of teenagers whinging. Ah, oh, just appalling. So you think they should have just got the two cars and crashed them together and have the rest of the film be about the consequences of that? Yes, exactly. That would have been, uh, that would have been fantastic. It should have been stupid and hyper-realistic. That's mm. what, what could have been, uh, fine. Talking of stupid hyper-realistic horror movies, House of a Thousand Corpses came out this year. Yeah. I didn't catch this till much later, it has to be said. Uh, and it's not a big hit with serious horror fans. I rather like it. There are those people who go, I quite like it, actually. Serious horror fans really like The Devil's Rejects, which I don't like as much. I think the thing I like about House of a Thousand Corpses is that it it wears, it is silly. It's it's quite obviously silly. And by the end, it's complete nonsense. But that doesn't really matter to me. I don't really mind the fact that it's silly nonsense. I think that it's some kind of weird... I think it's, there was there was definitely an, an, a feeling of embarrassment about it because it had no pre-screenings before it was released, and the, the, the first wave of word of mouth reviews were negative. I, I get the feeling they they knew they'd made something that wasn't going to be well received. But what's really weird about it is that when you look at some of the other stuff that came out uh, in this year. It kind of fits straight in there. Uh, Freddy vs. Jason is, is an example of this, as is SWAT, uh, Matrix movies, both of those fall into this category as well. Uh, the Cradle of Life Tomb Raider 1 does too, and indeed Darkness Falls. Oh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that did Underworld, of course. Wrong Turn probably did, although I'm not watching that again to find out if I'm right about this. The Animatrix, Too Fast, Too Furious. Basic, oh, bulletproof monk to a certain degree, or no, actually no, to a greater degree. Oh, and, um, uh, the rundown, also known as Welcome to the Jungle. Uh, all of these movies were particularly, I, I don't think it was noticeable at the time, but in retrospect, 2000, this time in the 2000s was the time when they made movies and they made big music label crossovers with, with, 
those movies. And so I'm sitting there watching these movies and all of a sudden you're breaking into, oh, Daredevil, of course, that, that, uh, broke, um, Evanescence. And then there's a lot of Linkin Park in SWAT. And there's, so there's a lot of new metal and then there's hip hop and all this stuff. And what I've realized is that we've got to a point in time now where new bands or new kind of edgy, uh, artists are not included as part of the soundtrack of films you kind of bang stuff on at the end you know the time on a tradition of having a pop song that you can download off i mean this is the thing back in the day you had soundtracks so people had to buy the whole soundtrack in order to get all the music from the film or they they tried to make like a companion piece now a film can have a song and that's 99 cents on iTunes. So off you go and buy that. And that's what they do now. Is that's it. This is the era of the single song. So it's like, oh, that's that song from that film. And I, yeah, I, I must admit, I had a, quite a good time. I had a better time with some of the movies. It's only some of them, but because they had loads of rock music in them, like SWAT would have been utterly terrible. I think, or pretty boring if it hadn't been for the fact that, oh, I like this song. Oh, this is good. This lifts the otherwise workmanlike action sequence slightly above. Uh, the other thing that makes SWAT better in retrospect is it's got Hawkeye in it as the villain. In retrospect, House of the Thousand nestles in this quite nicely as being a kind of rock and roll, Rob Zombie horror movie with all yep. the rock music and stuff in there. It's a, like, it's a perfect 2003 movie. It's just that people didn't think it was a very I good horror movie. I, I, well, I, I actually really like it, and I'm not a big horror fan, and it's just because it's crazy, right? I mean, it starts kind of conventionally, and then more it goes on, it's like, uh, okay, this is kind of like a weird kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing. And then it just goes like weirder and weirder and stranger. And by the end, you've got flipping, you know, unkillable Nazi surgeons. And, you know, it's it's actually crazy, but it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's a different type of horror movie. It's kind of a horror movie. It's almost like a pastiche of a horror movie. So it's, it's yeah. kind of funny. It's like a satire. It's very theatrical, I think. Yeah. Well, uh, the, um, the stinging criticism I can read, read on the wiki page is uh, James uh, Brundage of filmcritic.com who wrote... Too highbrow to be a good, cheap horror movie, too lowbrow to be satire, and too boring to bear the value of the ticket. Oof, Great, all right, whatever. Someone was just someone was just not in the mood for it that day, clearly. Yeah. Uh, but yes, let us move on to SWAT. You know, we've got Sam Jackson, Colin Farrell, LL Cool J, Michelle Rodriguez. Uh, it was a good cast uh, at the time, and and Hawkeye, uh, before he was Hawkeye, being a villain. He seems a lot happier being a villain, I had to say. Mm. In, in his Avengers stroke Bourne outings, Jeremy Renner seems a little bit subdued, whereas in this, he's positively reveling in his... Uh, in his role as the the evil SWAT guy. But um, if there was going to be a sort of cheap action franchise opportunity, SWAT was was a pretty good hit, I think. And it, it pushed a lot of buttons. I think, generally, it made the mistake of appearing at a time when people, I think, were pretty bored of this kind of thing. And, yeah, so... I mean, that, watching it now, it kind of survives because it's not like anything you have now. But it was like everything you had then, so it didn't survive then. Ian, you had thoughts. I, I completely forgot that Samuel Jackson was in it. I seem to recall it, I don't know, it's, 
I can't call it a bugbear as such, but it's kind of the swaggering maverick idiot hero who is he just has to go off the reservation, do his own thing. I started to become a bit irritated by this and actually, and actually siding with the angry bosses a lot more to keep them in line because they're idiots who put other people at risk as a result. I also remember the very obvious the very obvious line that some official had to say at them at some point going, SWAT stands for special weapons and tactics. I'm not seeing a lot of tactics. You know, that, that was, had to be done at some point. And I remember there's, show, was the showdown on some railway lines or something, I seem to recall. Oh yeah, well, yeah, okay. So, first of all, if, if you were irritated by the maverick person who goes off, the villain is the maverick who goes off book and, uh, people get hurt as a result of his maverick actions. So he's the villain. The other guy, uh, the Colin Farrell character, I think this is possibly a failing of the film, is actually pretty boring. He's not, you know, he's that kind of guy who doesn't <laughs> want to get in a fight. He's not very extreme. He, he he's, kind of, I like he's the Bella Swan of the action hero guys. It's, he's a blank slate you can project your own face onto. I, I guess so. Like he go, he's pretty good at shooting, but he goes home. He go, turns up to work. He he works in a gun cage for months upon end with no complaint. His big contribution is that he invents a, a battering ram combined with a grappling hook. He's not a particularly sw- swashy swag hero it's the guy who's like that who becomes the villain so that's probably what you remember but and the other thing is that the the bosses who criticize are written in such a way that it's obviously a setup like they don't really do anything particularly outlandish to be honest in fact most of the film is them training and yet this guy goes off on a mission to to ruin their lives Eh, for no particular reason. And it is like the script is almost written, oh, because reasons, you know, past. Things that we're not going to show you. And you're like, um, okay, that that seems a bit crap. And, you know... It, maybe it, just... maybe it was unfair of me, but the, I kind of put the film in the same box as I'd put Stealth a few years later in or something like that. Well, I don't think there's much argument about that. It's not great. It has to be said. It's very, like I say, it's very workmanlike. And I think possibly its biggest crime was probably having too high a budget. If they made the same movie but just turned the budget down a bit, like they could have, they didn't need all the things they had in it that made it all flashy, uh, it might have survived. In fact, there is a, a later direct-to-streaming VOD sequel called SWAT firefight i believe which i've not seen but yeah i mean there's there's still candle burning for a swat it, it did it, it did a kind of all right it, it was made for 70 million it took in over 207 million yeah so it, it almost yeah. made three times its money but not quite which is the benchmark of breaking even in film accountancy yeah. so there we go and, and i mean you know swat in this year is competing against things like uh let's let's go there pirates of the caribbean the original pirates of the caribbean now subtitled curse of the black pearl although at the time it was just called pirates of the caribbean how long had it been since we had a pirate movie well as long as it took from Cut- cutthroat island which is back well, in the yeah. 90s and, and think- no one see that yeah i mean i think it, i would say that probably the first successful pirate movie Probably. I mean, um, pirate movies are usually played, well, for some time anyway, that's not fair actually, because there's some classics from, 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 um, Hollywood legend, but, um, Of our period. Oh, that, indeed. And, um, not my favourite franchise because they tend to be rather stodgy, but this one wasn't too bad. It was a little bit overly long, but, you know, it introduced us to the world of Johnny Depp playing, yeah. Pirate, and uh, to be honest, that was probably the main reason for watching it because the others were the other characters, particularly Orlando Bland and you know, 
Kira Twig were just kind of just there and and uninspiring. It it did amaze me upon rewatching it just how long it passes until the pirates attack at night. It's like whoa, we're really really. It's, I thought I thought it was like and quick flashback to them being children set up present day pirates attack. No no, they actually string it out a bit. It's like I was surprised how long it took to get to the point. And also, um, commode. Uh, our, our, the perennial review we refer to in this podcast holds us up as a definition of Johnny Depp being out of control, out of control of the director. And indeed, I believe the producers were, were bricking themselves at watching the rushes at his, a very eccentric performance that was not in the script of doing it the way mm. he did it. And certainly just Johnny Depp's charisma, I think, carried him across and uh, became the uh, wonderful pirate who we grudgingly watch on films these days. But it could easily have been a bit of a disaster, I think. I, I think I think yeah. Mode is right to go, this guy's out of control and the director can't keep him in line. It, it's either have this or fire him. Well, it's the, fa- the fact is that Johnny Depp's performance survived longer than the uh, than the original trilogy, didn't it? You know, there's a fourth film, and believe there's a fifth film coming mm. at some point. Well, they, they want there to be, possibly there won't be. You can't argue with results, and uh, let us not forget that Gore Verbinski, director of the first three uh, Pirates movies, is also the director of uh, Nicolas Cage, Wonderful Life Wannabe, The Family Man, and also that that other one which i have not seen about the weather caster uh basically this guy directed uh hitherto sort of low-key kind of human soapy dramas that weren't even intellectually challenging and suddenly he's in this big action world and i think they you know you can blame johnny depp and say johnny depp was uh off the reservation but this film has executive interference written all over it Gore Verbinski is a guy you hire because you can push him about and get him to do stuff when you want him to and then later on because it was a big success they blame Gore Verbinski for any sort of bad things that are daily but in fact all it is is that this is a film made by executive interference that happened to work because it happens from time to time we've discussed it before that executive interference can make your film terrible, but sometimes actually makes a film work when it shouldn't. And this is one of those films, and Gore Verbinski is neither here nor there. I mean, uh, Commode does not stop at Johnny Depp was out of control. He hates these movies. He really, really hates them. Uh, he thinks they're bloated, stupid, no plot, just, just ridiculous wastes of his valuable film reviewer's time. And, I can kind of see where he comes from. I think in any given period, with the exception of the fourth one, which is terrible, and again, another movie I nearly fell asleep in, but of the first three, you could put one on, but one time I tried to do a marathon. And by the end, (laughs) you just feel like someone's gripped you by the collar and screamed the word pirates in your face for six hours. <laughs> it's true. It's, I never thought after I saw the third one, I'm like, I am pirated out. I am done with pirates. And that's not something I probably would have ever thought I would have said. But <laughs> yes, it's true that, that you feel like you've gone through every conceivable incarnation of legends of, you know, anything you know about pirates. And it's yes, it's there rammed into you. It's, 
Absolutely. Of the first three, you can take any one, sit down and watch it and go, yeah, that was all right. But you can't watch all three at once because you no. would just, your head would fall off. I, I don't think we're done with pirate movies until they get around to doing some form of Treasure Island because that's, they haven't touched Long John Silver yet, have they? They have done different incarnations of it. They've got Muppets Trevor Ryan and they've done, um. No, no, I mean, uh, the, 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 uh, the, 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 cause, because the latest trend with the Pirates of the Caribbean movies is to, is to find another pirate book. Exactly, do that. And, Maybe. And, and, and crap. They tend to concentrate more on the mystical side rather yeah, than, the, you know, the, cause that's their quiet standard in terms of, you know, happening in a real place. I think they've been undermined uh, by a couple of cultural uh, items. Uh, One, Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag is basically the Pirates of the Caribbean of games consoles. And admittedly, you know, well, they do have quite a large audience now. I mean, computer games are huge at this point. So it's it's in the mind. And the thing about AC4 is it actually walks you through the history of the, the golden age of piracy. So you meet every actual pirate who really existed. And uh, tells you stuff about them mixed in with a bunch of AC nonsense and then the other side of that is that if you're not into computer games Stars Channel has Black Sails uh, which has all the characters and is on to a second season and again is is a sort of take on the golden age of piracy uh, with Toby Stevens uh, as a sort of as Captain Flint in fact from yeah, well, Treasure, that is Island. Treasure Island is sort of but with yes. real pirates in it as well yes. like a, as it actually happened as opposed I mean because it's like yeah. the first season is like a prequel to the pointed treasure island at which uh long long john silver in that or john silver as he is in the first season because he hasn't got to the rest of it yet is basically the captain jack sparrow of that series so it's already been undermined and taken away if they did it now it'd be like well this is a ripoff of black sails without the boobs is what people would say so then i think we i think we may have been saved that has lone ranger Um, also put another hole on the side of the boat I think so, although the problem is, you see, when uh, something gets a bit of a stink about it, I went to see it at the time, I was like, well, that was fine. It wasn't great, but my it was My fine. parents enjoyed it. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. People are seeing it now and going, oh, that's pretty good, actually. I quite like that. But they were warned off it at the time. And so in retrospect, I think it'll be fine movie. I mean, the one that really is really, uh, I don't know about heartbreaking, but disappointing with this is the fact that uh, quite a lot of people who at the time slated John Carter have then gone, and then I watched it again. And I was like, oh, this is pretty good, actually. Uh, I quite like yeah. that. Now everybody likes that movie. And at the time, you couldn't do right for doing wrong. And and everyone's like crying about the fact that they're never going to get to see more of that. And they're like, well, you were the ones who tanked it at the box yeah, office absolutely. by going around spreading poison on the Internet. So don't cry, come crying to me about the fact that, oh, actually, it's pretty good. Quite like that. Mm. It was pretty good fun. And I was like, yes, it was. I said that at the time. Yeah. Lone Ranger isn't in that category. I think the people who didn't like it at the time still don't like it. All of the tastemakers. It's not a tastemakers movie, but it seems to be that it's a movie for people who aren't tastemakers. It's a movie for people who just go, oh, that was fun. And that, you know, and that all of them are having a good time with it. So the tastemakers can sort off because they're relatively a small part of the audience. And the only problem is that they had a marketing problem of not being able to get the Lone Ranger through to those people. I mean, that was kind of our different action movie of this year, uh, I think, because a lot of the rest of the stuff, you know, you had Bad Boys 2, you had the two Matrix sequels, one of which you were like, oh, well, this this could be interesting, and then the other one came out where, no, this is just a bit disappointing. Uh, just quickly... Dip Lara Croft in the, in, in, well, get out of the way. Oh yeah, Lara Croft. 
Angelina Jolie, much more of a thing by now, so she's able to re- exert some executive control over this film. Apparently, uh, Cred Life is much more like the Lara Croft film she wanted to make the first time round. It didn't make that much box, and they blamed the fact that the last video game was kind of awful, which it was. Uh, I think that's that's ridiculous. There's far more people watch films than watch and play video games, so I think that's that's sour beans on their part. Brutally honest with you, yeah, but the, the game was pretty awful for a variety of reasons. Can't completely blame Core, even though they did make it. They were kind of like, "Get out now! It's not finished yet. It's full of bugs. Get out now!" Oh, it bombed. Oh well, I guess you've lost creative control of making Laura Croft video games. How sad. Anyway, um, I'll, uh, I shall quickly mind about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which, which went and saw with a friend oh, oh, visiting. It, incredibly right, disappointing. Yes, I thought. Dorian Gray was a good parachute in. I, I thought having just mm. Tom Sawyer wasn't so good. My, my friend was very irate about the whole kind of, you know, the last century was a British century and this century is going to be the American century. That really wound him up tremendously, as you can imagine. It would work better as a series than as a film. The concept's too big for a film. I can sense Justin is barely oh. restrained, so I shall stand oh. back and let him take the stage. I was so, so Justin, Justin Jekyll oh. is about to leave, and Justin Hyde yes. is coming into the room. <laughs> um, I was so hope I had high hopes for this film, because I have to say, I love me some steampunk, and I do love the original uh, comics, so uh, graphic novels. So... And I like all the characters. I just like the idea of it. I think it's great uh, taking these literary characters and making them heroes all together in some kind of comic book fashion, going off and saving the world. So, so I was really kind of stoked for this. And then I began to get feel that it was probably I heard all troubles about the making of it and all kind of issues that were going on between Sean Connery and the and the director and things. And I was beginning to get a little bit troubled as I approached it. And then when I saw it, I was like, I just sat there. I think the point. I've become more and more miserable as it was going on. I was like, I can't believe what they're doing to this. I think the bit that got me was a bloody giant submarine going down the canals of Venice. And that's the point I just lost the plot. I was just like, this is stupid. I hate, I just, I mean, I might probably one of the films I'm closest to walking out of. I'm just like, I've had, I've had it now. I think I've actually watched it again and I've tried to enjoy parts of it just because of the steampunk nature and stuff. But it just fundamentally is just a missed opportunity and characters aren't used properly. I didn't really enjoy the Tom Sawyer thing at all. There's no chemistry where there should be people that like Sean Connery, even he can't save it. It's just a mess and just a travesty of what could have been. The original graphic novel just was so much smarter in its use of the characters. And here they were just kind of used as like, Yes, and here's here, so here's that, and everything. It's a bit of kind of Van Helsing nature to it, in that it's like stuff thrown at you and just moving on without really any cohesiveness. It's just, uh, yeah, I really don't like it. I think it's it's worth uh, mentioning here. It is tombstone of a sort. This is the film that persuaded Sean Connery that he just didn't want to be making films anymore, and he he hasn't. This is the last one. That death scene of Alan Quatermain. That's that's yeah. that's it. That's the last time you see Sean Connery act. That is, in essence, yeah. Sean Connery dies in the ice field as well. And so, should we have a moment of silence for the passing of Sean Connery out of the world of cinema? Yes. No more Zardoz. No more porn smash <laughs> Zardoz. No more Medicine Man. No more Entrapment. No, he will not be back, yet. Highlander. He will not even be back for Indiana Jones Four, which makes me think Sean Connery has some class. Uh, to to 
to play the other side of this coin for a minute, I do think that the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen bears the burden of, of queering the pitch for Van Helsing a bit. Van Helsing, which we'll get to later, is not as bad as uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen no, makes it seem. I think that uh, the point of Van Helsing is it's supposed to be a nice bit of knockabout fun. But League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I think, left a taste in people's mouths. It's just like Van Helsing just brought it all up. It's like a nice person who brings up a bad subject at a social gathering. Mm. They're not bad, but what they've said is out of order. And that's, that's yeah. how it, it went down. I knew nothing about it. I did know that the comic book upon which it was based, uh, series was a different kettle of fish entirely. Uh, but we, I think it was a point where I was kind of used to the idea that Alan Moore wanted nothing to do. So you can't really take much out of that. And I knew that it was too edgy for cinema. So I knew these things going in. I didn't know much more about it and I hadn't read the comic book. I didn't really care too much about silliness. And so I, I had an all right time. I do think the villain is under the villains are underwhelming. It doesn't really stick in the mind, which is a shame. And we're in an age now where you could probably do this. And in this age, obviously, they'd want to give everyone their own movie and then do this as a sort of uh, steampunk Avengers, which would be a fine idea. But at a time, we just didn't have the. We didn't have the poll. We didn't have the, you know, geek culture did not at this time have the gravity to be able to compel studios to market stuff like that. The problem is it's so iconic, you know, because it's his own. There wasn't really anything like this that it's not going to be made again before everyone has washed it out of their mind. That's the problem. He won't get another crack at it. And it really should be because I love this kind of adventure, Victorian adventure genre. And I, I just think it's going to be a long time before we, anyone is brave enough to try anything like it again. That's the prop, that's the real, the I mean, main crime of it. It nestles, now that I come to think of it, I mean, with the exception of the fact, obviously, it didn't really go for the new metal thing, which I can kind of respect in, uh, in a Victorian adventure. Don't really want many kind of, uh, processed drum loops and guitar riffs yes. in, in the soundtrack of that. But with that exception, it does nestle quite nicely in amongst all the other, and it shouldn't. It should stand out and it, it totally doesn't it weirdly one of the standout action movies of this year despite the fact that it also didn't act i mean in fact it's almost the reverse the mirror of the league of extraordinary gentlemen there is nothing remarkable per se about underworld whatsoever However, it is one of the standout movies of the year because it went on to be a franchise. But even sitting down to watch Underworld and even enjoying it at the time, you're like, there's nothing here that is original. No. Um, and the dialogue's pretty clunky, to be honest. I mean, yeah. at the time, everyone was like, wow, this dialogue is awful. And then you see what else was going on. And there's this thing. Uh, the Underworld is the brainchild of Len Wiseman and Kevin Grevieux. Uh, story-wise, that they'd work this stuff out. And it's Kevin Grevier, who, incidentally, for those who aren't aware, is the enormous black guy who talks like this all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's his actual voice, probably. It's like, uh, wow, how deep is your larynx, man? <laughs> guy is like six foot six and like six foot wide and has this deep voice. And he's one of the nerdiest men on the planet. Because... The reason Underworld's dialogue is quite as bad as it is is because before sitting down to write the script, 
they worked out, you know, like 800 years of complicated vampire and werewolf politics, history, wars, battles. Well, I mean, it's all there. They've got, they must have a book somewhere or, you know, a number of documents which detail the entire history because as the Underworld franchise has rolled on until they did the clean break reboot fourth one, you see all of these bits and bobs that they've obviously got together and you know that it's there because, uh, last year I Frankenstein is another Kevin Greview story world. And he just, obviously, he just goes into his little nerd cave with his word processor and his enormous fingers type these incredibly <laughs> complicated metaphysical kind of battlegrounds between gargoyles, demons, vampires, werewolves. I mean, this is a crazy guy uh, who I have to admire. But yeah, Underworld was the fruit of you watching a film which basically was like the sixth movie in a in a franchise where they boiled it down and go, yeah, but it's going to be the first movie in the franchise. So can we just tweak the dialogue so everybody keeps explaining what's happened to everybody all the time? But yet it got a following and people kind of liked it. We love it despite its flaws. We're, we're both unabashed on Underworld fanboys. And we're fully aware how terrible the flaws and weaknesses the series has, and we wouldn't necessarily recommend them for general public consumption. But it takes itself so seriously. And, and as we always said, a good mythology is great for suckering somebody in. To, to, to it's like it's like Lord of the Rings. If you're into the mythology, you can watch hours of hobbits walking across landscapes because it's just that good to see it. But yeah, I mean, yeah. even the, the thought of vampires poncing about in shiny rain max and shooting each other with automatic weapons and jumping off things and doing bullet time and stuff it's like it's basically the matrix in a sort of gothic cast really yes and you're like mm, okay, so okay definitely i mean i really enjoyed underwood and i think for me it wasn't terribly original because i role-played in the 90s and was very familiar with uh, the whole kind of vampire stroke werewolf kind of urban Masquerade kind of, kind of yeah. Masquerade and all that kind of stuff, the uh, World of Darkness stuff. However, and, and to be honest, I was actually rather surprised that I enjoyed the film because, to be absolutely honest, at the time, I think that a lot of my friends were going, let's go and see this film because it's got Kate Beckinsale in tight clothes and leather. And I was actually surprised there was only more than that. <laughs> Because I was like, mm, okay, all right. I, I enjoyed it as as a bit of nonsense, really, and yeah. and and, uh, and yeah, I I enjoyed the mythology. Well, over the course of time, it's clocked in performances from the likes of you know Bill Nye, Derek yeah. Nimmo, Charles Dance. You know, everyone's been Derek in this Jacobi. Movie. Derek Jacobi, yeah. Everybody, everybody has been I, in I this think movie. I'm as Bill well. Nye from his Pirates. I, I think he just likes he likes where he can just ham it up a bit. Uh, not ham it, but you know. Yeah, just, just, just go bonkers if, if, with it. If, if he didn't, then he wouldn't have been in I Frankenstein because he knew what yeah. he was getting into when he got into that, no doubt. Because it's like, oh look, it's a story by Kevin Greview again. This means I will get to go completely yeah. mental <laughs> and probably fly through the air. I can't class. I won't grow wings at some point. This is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So you know, that, I sign me up. I'm having yeah. fun. It's exactly the same thing. I mean, Michael Sheen said the same thing. It's like, oh, I play, you know. Tony Blair and, and, you know, David Frost and I do a lot of biopics. Why would I not want to grow my hair out, have some extensions put in, get some leather trousers on and turn into a wolf every so often? <laughs> why, how, if someone offers you that opportunity, why would you not take it? It's, it's, it's a little yeah. bit of a break from the old routine. It's a bit of a palate cleanser from playing Tony Blair. I'll go be a werewolf for a while. Yeah. 
it takes itself seriously and it has to because if it didn't it wouldn't be any fun for anyone and and yeah. as it is it's fun for everyone because they're all like yes i'm really serious wink i mean the, the big shame of it is that clearly you know there's a bit of a passion project about underworld because if you watch them i mean it's it's weird because the third movie which is the prequel is really not a prequel in the sense that it fills in details you didn't need it's actually just the first you know a first movie you know that's how it is i mean it's it's widely regarded as one of the better ones precisely because it doesn't have this freight of story it has to get out of the way you know it just get straight on with the the meat of a, an actual thing that happens but then if you watch that and then watch underworld and then you watch what's really crazy is that michael sheen's performance carries over mm. backwards like this is a guy who can pick up a character halfway through and run with it and then when he makes the prequel he manages to build it so his first line in underworld when he comes down the stairs and says you know we're not animals we're, you know, we're lichens, we're not animals, is just straight out of the, the other movie, which is weird because the other movie won't be made for like six years. I yeah. Just, yeah, I just, so obviously they were dedicated to it, they were into it, and that's kind of carried across. That kind of enthusiasm is what has given the film its fan base. Uh, something that can't be said for uh, our other uh, comic book entries this year, uh. Daredevil and Hulk. Let's take them as a pair. That's uh, so a Marvel team up. Of mm. disappointment. Yeah, do you remember uh, when they used to make poor Marvel films? There was a time. I mean, Hulk is irredeemable uh, mm. due to the joke. Uh, what's big, green, angry, and doesn't appear for the first hour of the movie? The Hulk. It can't be saved. There isn't anything good about no. the, the movie. Really. No, and hence they had to rewrite it with you know the Incredible Hulk. It's it's wrong on so many levels. I mean, I watched this film really trying to like it i'm not i'd say the hulk is not one of my favorite characters anyway but i was watching it and i'm like i am not convinced by this hulk when he becomes a when he eventually becomes the hulk i'm like there's something very wrong about this and then i saw the making of and realized that all the motion capture stuff was done by ang lee would you believe right this is so that basically they have based the movement on you know an eight foot tall creature on a kind of short kind of, you know, Chinese guy. I was like, why would you, hell would you do that? And when I watched it, I'm like, that's why it doesn't make sense because his movements are almost comical because they don't have any weight to them. And I know it's kind of a technical thing, but it kept taking me out of the film. I'm like, I should be believe this thing. And it looks like I'm watching a cartoon. It's just ridiculous. And added with that, with just the plot, it, I mean, for God's sake, radioactive poodles. We've got some existential kind of thing at the end. Was like, what is going on with this film? It is the most ludicrous, ludicrous pile of crap I've seen for some time. And like, if I didn't love the Hulk, to be, if I was like, you know, anyone, well, if you loved the Hulk, you would have absolutely hated it. Yeah, that's, that's me. Hello. And if you didn't like it, you'd never have any more interest in it. So it was very, very bad. I was um, actually, I was warned off this by you, Leo. Um, yeah. You summed it up as, you know, Incredible Hulk is supposed to be someone hits him or injures a friend of his and suddenly the shirt breaks out and he attacks them. Whereas instead it's just a case, in this film it's like, paperwork, mm, I'm angry! It is, is kind of how you summed it up. Uh, yeah, I think there was some weird thing about uh, the a whole angry thing. It didn't really, because uh, Ang Lee got very hung up on that idea of, you know, anger management, 
the film became very muddy. The whole point is that he didn't understand that. It's supposed to be very simple, just like in the Edward Norton Incredible Hulk movie. Some guy is bullying someone else. And in a sense, in The Incredible Hulk, which is based on the TV series as much as it is based on the Marvel property, as much as it is a sort of a, a kind of sideways sequel to this, the whole point is that it's actually a sort of sense of moral outrage or anger stemming from injustice that's and that's what the television producers had kind of hooked onto in the bill bixie lou ferrigno area that that is what people would make people sympathize with the hulk if nothing really made bruce banner david banner whatever you want to call him angry except man doing wrong to other men and turning into sort of a kung fu thing whereas um Ang Lee wanted to explore the issues of what makes people angry in a different way. If you've been affected by the issues like, raised in this movie, please call this toll-free number. <laughs> oh, it was just like, you know, it, it, the whole point is that the Hulk works when the Hulk is simple. And what the Avengers proved is the Hulk works when the Hulk is funny. So, the, I mean, the two, there's two actual ends to the Hulk in comics. Hulk works when Hulk is simple, he said, talking like the Hulk in third person. But Hulk also works when it's so insane, and that's the problem in a way, he wasn't insane enough. Some mm. of the standout Hulk storylines of history for Hulk aficionados are ones that are so completely insane that you're just like, I don't even, I'm not even sure I'm following this. And, and those are the ones that people enjoy. It's either if it's really complicated or if it's just very simple. Anything in between is a recipe for disaster. Just go ask the Grey Hulk about that um this is what the big tragedy is if ang lee had wanted to do what he wanted to do and if he'd have had probably permission from the producers marvel would surely have aided and abetted him in Mm. making some kind of gray hulk day Mm. and night like that's it did because the comics do explore that and i think that's where ang lee was feeling happy and if it was the modern day they go okay fine go nuts with that do that take where he turns into gray hulk at night and then there's David Banner and then there's bits that take place in his subconscious where Grey Hulk is like opening a big door covered in chains to let the Green Hulk out of a door in. That would be fine. It would be hilarious. It's a bit like um, the way that the Thor movies have gone into this complete other world of bonkers craziness. Uh, and people would accept it. But back then, it wasn't the time. And indeed, it, it it's wasn't. It's a shame because the card was great, you know, and I just thought that, yeah, it was... Unfortunately, they all had to be written out of the history because because this because of this film was so bloody stupid. So. Well, in, in, in the early part, March, I think it was, of this year, uh, 2003, uh, Daredevil uh, came to the big screen. And this year, 2015, Daredevil in April is coming to the small screen via Netflix. So it's a kind of a topical thing. And yeah. uh, Daredevil is uh, the reverse of, of Pirates of the Caribbean in that it is a film uh, that we now know was pretty much given no chance to succeed at the cinema due to executive interference. Mm-hmm. The director's cut of Daredevil, which is actually an okay movie, two hours and 20 minutes. And they went, don't be silly, nobody will sit through two hours and 20 minutes of a movie at the cinema, so we need to cut it down to, uh, you know, one hour and 40 minutes and change bits of it. So the, the director dismissively describes the cinematic, so the theatrical cut of Daredevil as the, you killed my girlfriend cut. Um, <laughs> nice. because, in the director's cut, 
because Mark Stephen Johnson is such a big fan of Marvel Comics generally, but Daredevil in particular, which is how somehow how he won the gig. I mean, I'm not sure that uh, studios at that time really gave a crap about someone being a big fan, but apparently it, it went in his favour on this. And he turned in a film in which it was very important to him that because somebody somewhere wanted Elektra to be in it, not him, I don't think, but somebody did, he kind of did this thing, OK, we'll put her in it, but I'll use her as a point to demonstrate uh, you remember, of course, the uh, famous scene on the rooftop in which the rain falls onto Jennifer Garner's face and Ben Affleck goes, oh, but she is beautiful like that because now he can see her with sonar vision or whatever it is. In the theatrical cut, this leads to the uh, uh, standard, oh, we're by a log fire, there's a furry rug and, 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 and you know, it's all like, uh, oh, and then there's saxophone music and wow. And then uh, Bullseye kills her and then Ben Affleck gets upset because he thought he'd found true love uh, with the woman that he'd just had a one-night stand with. Mark Stephen Johnson does not subscribe to this view of Daredevil. He put that rooftop scene in because then somebody calls for help. And the one thing that he wanted to make plain to everyone is that Daredevil cannot ignore a cry for help in Hell's Kitchen. He can't. He, it doesn't matter what is happening, he has to go. And so in the director's cut, he goes... I'm really sorry, Electra. Uh, not that I know that you're a, Ele- well, he does because that's her name, but not that I know that you're an assassin, but someone needs my help. Bye. And she stood there and was like, what? I just <laughs> got dumped for, I'm not even sure what I got dumped for. And then, then Bullseye kills her. And in fact, Daredevil's motivation becomes more about justice and much more about, well, that was a crappy thing to do mister i quite liked her i met her we went out on a date but that beyond that you were a git mm. whereas in in the theatrical cut it's like no my woman and then he goes and tries to kill and it doesn't make any sense so yeah that was the big complaint people came out of the theater with and then they saw the director's cut and went oh this actually makes sense plus there's a whole thing of matt murdoch being an actual lawyer and doing a and there being a a case that he yes. tries you know, these days you'd probably just release the director's cut in the theater because people sit through it they will so yeah daredevil is actually an all right movie but didn't work i i mainly uh, remember yeah. colin farrell uh jumping out of the screen and gnawing on my leg i think that's the main memory i have of it <laughs> well that's well, why I- the film is uh so free of uh scenery because colin farrell chewed it all. <laughs> I think there are a lot of things going for it. Um, and definitely the, the, the director's cut is def- definitely way far, far superior. I think the main problem I had was Ben Affleck's performance. I didn't quite, I didn't really buy it. And also when you saw him as the lawyer, as the blind lawyer, just that, he just seemed like he was doing like a comedy kind of cross-eyed effect all the time, which took me out of the film. I must well, admit. As we've discovered, as much as he respects, because he's friends with Kevin Smith, obviously, as much as he respects people who like comic book stuff, and he probably, you know, reads the odd comic book himself, and he likes that whole thing. When it comes to be, making a film, Argo is what he wants, his go-to. Yeah. I mean, again, we've kind of taken this step. Underworld was a lot of people having a lot of fun, taking something seriously because they realised it wouldn't work at all if they didn't. Daredevil, Ben Affleck doesn't have that. He can't make something he thinks is fundamentally silly. He can't take it seriously. He can't. Well, yeah, oh, dear, here comes his Batman. That's Fleck. <laughs> let's see we'll pa- i'll pass judgment i'll, I'll um, then but uh yeah yeah I, I, it, 
yes, it's 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 it is flawed, but yeah. uh, but certainly, if I hadn't seen the director's cut, I would have put this down, you know, flushed this down the toilet with the Hulk. So that did redeem it in certain aspects, but it is still flawed. Yeah, I mean, Ben Affleck is not the best. I mean, the thing is that um, the difference, uh, I think, in the Batman, just to say, you know, cover that ground again, is the fact that Batman's now had, you know, a reputation for nearly 10 years of being the serious thinking man's superhero movie. And so... Ben Affleck has a way into that. Whereas Daredevil from the get-go dressed up in red leather and bounced about. Yeah. I mean, this is Daredevil the year after Spider-Man via the Three Stooges, uh, Wolverine and his sweet cheek beards. Ben Affleck didn't have a reference to get into the seriousness yeah. of the character and therefore that made it kind of difficult. We could still hold a little bit of hope. Speaking uh, of Ben Affleck, uh, Paycheck was this year as well. Oh, yeah, okay. Let's mention that. Uh, I, I remember the trailer, which had to explain the concept of reverse engineering. It was like, uh, some companies take the products of their competitors and reverse engineer them. This is done by reverse engineers. Ben Affleck is the world's best reverse engineer. This is the trailer, ladies and gentlemen. It's a nice concept. Uh, you've had your memory erased, but you've seen the future. So you're giving yourself a parcel full of items, each of which will be helpful to you at some point in your perilous journey to defeat the bad guys. Very clever concept. It's a bit meh. Uh, well, it's, it's another film, yet another film based on the scribblings of uh, famous uh, paranoid weirdo Philip K. Dick. See Total Recall, uh, Blade Runner, etc. for further details. And it's also an American film of John Woo, uh, who made, gave us the wonderful face-off. This isn't wonderful. It's not face-off and it's not Total Recall. It's none of these things. I think it's big problem is the bad guys whoever they are have a thing or there's something is happening where they're going to require a guy to come into a room find out what that thing is while the guy is figuring out what the thing is he also works out that this is uh, supposed to be a one-way trip the only thing that's saving him at all is the fact that at the end of this part of his contract is his memory will be completely wiped so they're probably not just going to open the door take all the stuff you know information off him and shoot him there and then because there is a possibility that he will have his memory wiped and then not know so he has to act like a bit dumb like he works out some implication of that uh, the thing that he is reverse engineering that means they're probably going to want to kill him so at that point he spends some of his reverse engineering time setting up this or you know cunning number of clues and god knows what and then when he has his memory wiped he is helping himself get towards the secret that is so bad that people are going to come which is complicated to start off with let's not forget and then you have to say well what is this thing that has caused this nest of vipers to emerge. And they kind of did the thing which is fatal, which is, I don't know, you know, we've worked out now, nothing could possibly be that bad. You know, we run the risk of people who's going to go, really? They did all this for that? Or I don't even understand what you're talking about? Or in latter years, J.J. Abrams could have told anyone, just don't tell them then. You know, that Mission Impossible 3 is entirely predicated on the idea of this technology. You never find out what it is. Never. And therefore, you know, it's the fight that's important, not the MacGuffin. They may as well have called the thing the MacGuffin in Mission Impossible. Well, I'd say in Paycheck, because it's a machine that sees the future, it's kind of essential for him to have used the machine that sees the future to prime him with the pack of uh, useful items, isn't it? I guess the thing is John Woo is another director who like tries to find action out of 
relationships. And this is not one of those movies. If, if Verhoeven had been at all interested, he's a director who likes to play games with the audience. He's using the entire film to prod the audience's buttons, which is why Total Recall works. And if Verhoeven had been interested, they probably went and asked him if he wanted to do it. He said no. Then we would have got a more interesting movie because this is not a film about where action emerges from a relationship. This is a film where the person t- telling the story is expected to punch the audience's buttons to make them go, ooh, ah, and be interested, a la Minority Report, Total Recall, Blade Runner, blah, blah, blah. And it just, it's the, the problem is that the two things, it falls in between those two stools. It's not involving on a relationship emotional level to work that way and for the action therefore to be compelling for that reason and it just doesn't push your buttons enough for you to care about it any other way so justin i have to say i i've seen it when it was on tv once and i don't it kind of washed over me really i don't think it's one of my i could clearly see the philip k dickisms in it just kind of went mm, yeah and again i have to say these type of films have been Aff- i mean I'm, I'm not a huge ben affleck film until he generally and so he's still in this phase where he's making these films and i yeah largely kind of went well that was that and didn't really affect me well Uh, uh, paycheck also starred uma thurman and speaking of uma thurman leo surely surely one of your favorite films of the year came out came in by one of your favorite directors returning to cinema for the first time in god knows how many years this should have have you very excited uh, Kill Bill, uh, I was, let's put it this way, I was reserved. I was like, okay, this I might be alright, you know, hmm, I don't know, I'll go and see it. So I did. And then it was like, I mean, you know, Kill Bill Volume 1, it was right there on the screen, this isn't going to finish here. So I got to the end and was like, well, we have to wait and see what Volume 2 is like, really, to see whether this is, hangs together. And... um yeah. It's so poisonous against Quentin Tarantino as an inability to edit himself. You know, as if it wasn't until I went to film this thing, I realized it was too long, that it's, it's put us off watching Quentin Tarantino hence, bearing in mind what fanboys no, no. were. That isn't, that isn't the problem. The problem is up to pop fiction, although it's kind of cynical that this is, you know, I'm making a cultural mashup. The hype of it was this is really original. And at the time, I think, <laughs> really? Quentin Tarantino probably mentioned, well, Quentin Tarantino kind of mentioned, it's not really that original, I'm matching stuff up. And then his yes-men, or the people around him who were saying, you know, nodding their heads and saying yes, were like, yeah, but you've got to understand the way you've put it together. Nothing is original, but the way that you've done this, that's the original thing. And the point is that it was poisonous to him to accept that as truth. It's not true. He's like a sort of a 70s pop culture DJ He's cutting together bits and bobs of stuff. And as long as he regards himself with humility in that sense, I'm sure he's got a chance. But he he stopped a long time ago regarding himself in that light and instead has bought his own hype uh, that he is some kind of one, you know, this is what originality is all about. And this gives rise to things like his complete tantrum that people didn't want to double dip Kill Bill and own every conceivable version of it. Mm. So they, what they, you know, the big plan is we're going to release single disc editions for you to enjoy, you know, right away. Uh, but then I'm going to do this massive, I've got all this stuff. 
ready and I've got plans for a big because we realise this is now the era of DVD and we've got all this extra content that we want to share with you and you know there and then nobody but everyone went well I'm not being double dipped on it I'll just buy the special edition cheers and he went right well fine well if you won't buy the single disc edition I'm not doing the double disc edition screw you all and we went well no screw you then and that's it in one single move he ruined his career. It doesn't set the box office alight the way that he he, can't, he won't do it again now because of well, that. He's Ted, you're quite right. But it's the whole fact that this is two movies at all. That is because it was supposed to be one and he'd have to cut out vast chunks of his genius. It, these directors, and they do have a certain degree of talent, but they just can't edit themselves. It's the same. It's go back to The Hobbit again. It's like, you know, he, he's a director, the Dame of The Hobbit, uh, Jackson, is talented and craft, everyone acts really good in The Hobbit. It's just too long and Kill Bill is just, it's just too long. It could have been a nice punchy two hour revenge movie. Instead we got, oh my God, did we really need to have the extended scene where, where, you know, what's his name? Michael Mann's Manson is forced to clean a lavatory. Was, was that an essential scene? No. Yeah. I think that, well, I think that it comes from different places though. Peter Jackson sees himself as a curator of cinematic Tolkien. I mean, that's the role that has been conferred upon him. So the reason for what re, for a thing that The Hobbit is so crammed full of extraneous rubbish is because he knows if he made, just made a Hobbit movie, all of that extraneous rubbish that he thinks should be curated for future generations just wouldn't get made into film. So he's doing it now, and that's it. And he was allowed to do that. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, history will be the judge. But that's his, his, it's coming from a place of, I'm curating this as movies for future people to look at movies. Whereas the, Tarantino's not working off anyone else's stuff. He's not curating anything except the thoughts that come out of his own brain. So, yeah. That's which, are, which are too good to cut. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, uh, I actually quite liked uh, the volume one, but when I watched the second one, I'm like, well, one, the, it, well, this is a kind of thing that Tarantino is a bit erratic in terms of style because one, it doesn't resemble the the first one at, in any way because it's much more kind of realistic as it were, but also you kind of go, oh, well, that surely that surely that could have been condensed into one easily, really. I mean, there's just stuff that happens. And it takes its time doing it. And he said the thing he would have to cut is the whole flashback to the mentor. And he just didn't want to do that because it was so important to establishing the character of the bride, apparently. I mean, really, I mean, the, the, the first one is kind of a series of kind of cartoon like images, really, isn't it? That I mean, literally at one point that he's just kind of, you know, ultra violent, ultra kind of all kind of things. And then we, it's a little bit of a mess. But I mean, I quite enjoyed the theatricality of it. Because you can't treat it on its own because you kind of, well, that's not, that's not the end of the story. And then the end of the story is kind of like, well, that's what happens. And you go, oh, okay, fine. Obviously you kill him (laughs) because it's called Kill Bill. Then yes, it does make you kind of think like something is therefore slightly wrong about the first one. So it's, it's it's because it's the Lucy Lou episode. That's all it is. I, I think the keynote here 
is that the legacy of Kill Bill, the longest lasting fingerprint it has left on culture, is that now everyone and his dog knows uh, the song, the uh, soundtrack yeah. item, Battle Without Honour or Humanity. Yes. And m- in fact, most people, even those who are not film educated, well, most who are not film educated can't remember where they heard it before. And those that can remember that it was in Kill Bill all know it as that tune that actually comes out of some obscure Japanese movie that Quentin Tarantino ripped off to put in Kill Bill. Nobody knows it as the song from Kill Bill. They either know it as, oh, I've heard this, I don't know where I've heard it, and it's on television shows all the time now, so it's impossibly muddied the waters of that, but that everyone who does know at least that it featured in Kill Bill knows that that's not the first place they heard it. And that is kind of like how Quentin Tarantino has gone. Because if you then go back to Little Green Bag, Little Green Bag pre-existed Reservoir Dogs, Mm. but... It's kind of, well, you always see the, you know, the beginning of Reservoir Dogs whenever you hear Little Green Bag. And this is the difference. Good Quentin Tarantino makes it impossible for you to disassociate his reference from his work. Whereas bad Quentin Tarantino, you're always seeing this is a reference and reference, 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 reference. It's kind of like a, a grindhouse cinematic, like, family guy thing going on there so yeah uh, in case we have to be in danger of not being able to cut any of our thoughts and Mm -hmm. being too dear and there's having to split up let's round off uh one thing i'm quite intrigued to know uh american splendor thoughts on this uh, anyone i love paul giamatti anyway yes he's one of my favorite actors I, I, yeah, I, 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 li- I like, I really love the subject matter anyway. I'd rather enjoyed it, I have to say. Uh, American Splendor, for those of you that don't know, uh, there's a, a guy called Charlie Peaker who writes a comic book called American Splendor, which is basically kind of like a pictorial diary. I mean, he's, you know, a, a really good artist and he has a, a knack for putting everyday incidents into a, into a comic book format that people consume and enjoy as comic enthusiasts. But he, he works as some kind of a clerk. Uh, generally, um, because his comic book doesn't sell enough for him to make a living otherwise. And he would just write about that as well and, and his friends and what was happening in his life. And people bought it and it, it compiled. And then over time, I think he's, he's made some money out of it, you know, in the long run, but he's never stopped being some schlub who works as a kind of filing clerk who writes these comics. I mean, he stopped writing the comic now. I believe, because, you know, he just got too old and there's too much to do. And, you know, he felt, I think it's something, you know, you kind of feel you've done enough. But this is the movie. This is a a comic book adaptation of that. And therefore, it simultaneously collides the comic book and the biopic of the artist, because the comic book is a kind of biography of the artist and a documentary because it has the actual people talking about the the non-reality of the Paul Giamatti strand which is the biopic and it, it so it's a complex movie to watch but at the same time quite gentle because it's not really about much more than some guy and his life making comic books and it, it is I think the go-to around this time because the fact that X-Men and Spider-Man and uh, Hulk and Daredevil are blowing up at the box office that your your comic aficionado could go you know you say what's your favorite comic ad- book adaptation of the last few years ago american splendor ha ha yes. <laughs> i am now 
a hipster. I'm just going to go grow a beard and have a soy latte. So, yeah, but, I mean, it doesn't take away from the fact that this is a fine movie yeah. and I think worthy of, of mention uh, as, as, a, as a go-to recommendation if you've not seen it. The thing Ang Lee tried to do in The Hulk was actually make the, the some of the techniques using comic techniques. So he has the Hulk jumping out of panels. And it's that, and that's the, probably the only thing I like about the Hulk, to be honest. The rest of it is lost in the mess. But this one actually embraces it and, you know, uses comic book panels and all the kind of conventions as well, which works really well for this film. You know, it would look stupid in an actual conventional comic book film. But because of the nature of it and the kind of slightly kind of whimsical, kind of strange world that this character inhabits, it's perfect, you know. It's a little gem, really. If you haven't seen it. Please see it. It's, 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 I, I really enjoy it. Justin, I just have to ask, you're the Tim Burton guy around here, so Big Fish? Uh, well, it's it's a departure in a lot of ways from kind of Tim Burton, although, of course, it's got freaks and people from, from the circus. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I... Johnny Depp is busy this year. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of watched it, and I don't know, it's, it's lacking something. Johnny um, Depp? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love I love it when Tim Burton's just doing proper Tim Burton stuff, and sure we might get a bit bored about it these days, but you know that's what he does. So it's a departure from that. He's trying to do something a little different. Yeah, I mean I watched it. I I didn't really care for the characters on a huge level, um, and it just happened. And to be honest, I haven't seen it again. I can't really remember much about it other than a couple of key little bits and pieces. Quite a kind of gentle little story, really, about kind of a man's life and. And that's it, really. I did, didn't really have a great deal of impact on me. The only thing I remember about Big Fish is that when Pushing Daisies, the television series, came along, yes. I thought, oh, that's the same kind of thing as Big Fish, same kind of tone, yes. this idea of a story being told in this kind of weird, whimsical world. Um, and then, in fact, uh, Pushing Daisies, therefore, because there's more of Pushing Daisies, eclipses Big Fish because yeah. it's the same sort of thing, which says there's only so much of this that the world needs. Uh, in that uh, small diversion of trying to cram another one in, you have, in fact, Ian, unleashed upon us the idea that this is this is the year that they wanted to make the... Uh, that I think there's a thing where there's The Rock, WWE's mm. The Rock, the wrestler, and Dwayne Johnson. And in this year, there was the the point at which the two things started to come apart in the person of the rundown stroke, Welcome to the Jungle, because for some reason they thought that British audiences wouldn't. I'm sure that there's some the a rundown is a sporting thing, and they said, well, we don't have that in Europe, so call it something else. It's like, but the rundown is a perfectly good title for a movie, um, and and this is kind of the forgotten Dwayne Johnson movie due to the fact that he was credited as The Rock, and the movie was funded by uh, WWE. And the reason I say it's the forgotten Dwayne Johnson movie is because it's a really good action movie. I watched it uh, like a few years later because at the time I wrote it off. And then I watched it again in preparation for this show. And it's superb. And it's just unfairly kind of ignored, I think, as part of the... You know, it's it's got everything going for it. I mean, it's also got Sean William Scott in it, and he's another one of these actors who's very unlucky because he's eclipsed by Stifler. Everyone goes, oh, that's that guy who's Stifler. We already said this with Bulletproof Line. I mean, this is the fact. Sean William Scott made two movies this year in which he was not Stifler, quite demonstrably, and tried to do more stuff than Stifler, and it totally didn't work at all. 
couldn't embed himself in the consciousness in any other way, despite the fact that Bulletproof Monk was good. And uh, Welcome to the Jungle, uh, stroke the rundown, is like, I'm actually surprised by how good it is in retrospect. I mean, you know, it helps that the villain is Christopher Walken. Yes, he does. Oh, that is an amazing turn. Yeah, I saw, I actually, I saw it relatively recently as well, maybe, maybe a month or so ago again, and um, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I thought, yes, it stands up. I saw it a while ago, previous to that, and I'm like, yes, it's good, good fun. I'm it's, enjoying the banter. I'm enjoying, you know, the kind of action. It's the combination, yeah, it's the combination of having that kind of action movie banter type, you know, pretty standard for this year with, you know, cause Sean Williams Scott's there, they kind of add a little hint of that frat boy kind of thing. Mm. But then throwing in just a random strand of Indiana Jones, just a, yeah. just a smattering, enough to be a reference, but not so much that you start going, oh, this is getting iffy. Yeah. And then having Christopher Walken just Christopher Walkening it up to the max. Yes, yes, yeah. When you put all that together, it's a magical hour and a half. You're just like, yeah. oh, this is actually, I'm really enjoying this. And I think if there's one thing that's a bit of a failing, you need to watch it a couple of times because it surprises you so often that you come out the first time and you go, I better watch that again. And then you watch it again, you go, wow, this has actually got some pretty good moments in it. And, and the rock, uh, well, Dwayne Johnson really turns in. He's really trying because we know he's a decent actor, but he's, there's something about his performance saying, I'm not the Scorpion King. I'm mm-hmm. Dwayne Johnson and I'm going to be a film star. And in a way, at that point, it doesn't come off quite at that point, but in his historical context, it's a fine Dwayne Johnson movie, which is why I felt it had to come in and be mentioned. It would actually make quite a good double bill with The Quick and the Dead because uh, Gene Hackman and Christopher Walken play <laughs> the same kind of bad guy. The Gene Hackman one is really Gene Hackman-y. And they both have that same speech about you live and draw breath because I allow it. But Gene Hackman does it really seriously and really with a lot of clarity. And Christopher Walken does it like like Christopher Walken. <laughs> I'm just going to take the phone off the hook and Christopher Walken it up (laughs) I'm just trying to imagine Quick and the Dead now with Christopher Walken playing Herod and am I having a headache Anyway, the problem is that as, as the years go on, more and more films get made. So more and more movies. Yeah, we haven't even touched on the uh, somewhat ridiculous premise of Bruce Almighty, because why would we? But if people were, were, were to be really displeased that we should have uh, left out Gothica starring Halle Berry and Robert Downey Jr. at a time when he was like, oh, that guy, yeah, I like him. Who's he again? <laughs> if they wanted to, to moan about that to us, where would they go to tell us that that so, was their favourite? You mentioned Gothic now and selling him that Harry Belly marries that much older professor who is much, much larger, and it seems a really odd pairing, and they never accept. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it gave us hope. Yes, <laughs> this is true, actually. I, if, if we lived in a more fictional world, I'd be married right now. 
Anyway, <laughs> if you would like to go somewhere to berate us for our cowardice for completely avoiding our nemesis Michael Bay not talking about Bad Boys 2, you can go to our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. Uh, but podcasts are what it's all about. For those who want to point your browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S kids please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download to your computer for dark reasons of your own uh, but this is only where our most recent podcasts can be found for the legacy of our podcasts you must go to uh, leostableford.com where uh, you can in addition to finding um the legacy of the podcast find other articles you may soon therefore find an article there explaining that bad boys 2 is just sort of like bad boys but a little later on and much longer it's like the lord of the rings of bad boys <laughs> movies it's it's far too long much like me at this point so i'm gonna say if people want to see pictures of bad boys 2 where might they not go to see that well, you might find some pictures on my Demon Art page where you might like to see pictures of me inspired by why there weren't more movies based on theme park rides like Haunted Mansion. Um, like Where is a Small World, uh, for example, or the Teacup Ride. But anyway, you'll find them on the Demon Art page. On, on. <laughs> That is uh. true, actually, now that we come to the end of it. The Haunted Mansion is that other movie that was based on a fairground yep. ride that came out. I mean, yeah, how Eddie Murphy must burn copies of Pirates of the Caribbean and throw darts <laughs> at pictures of Johnny Depp because they both, I did, I kind of forgotten they came out in the same yep. year. And one of them did Gangbusters and the other one was The Haunted Mansion. And The Haunted um, Mansion, as a, as, a, as a ride in Disney, is like hugely popular and it's got ghosts. So, yeah, it should have done well. It's not a terrible movie. It's not good, no. but it's not terrible. And, and that's the kind of the same as Pirates. I mean, Pirates isn't, isn't it, you know, has a little bit of piratiness, but really it's kind of a bit mediocre. And so, you know, that's, that's the real bitter pill, is uh, when your mediocre movie uh, loses out to another incredibly similar, also mediocre movie that for some reason people just grasp and run with. So Sorry, there we go. Mr. Murphy, your career is still dead. I'm still in and shock I, I, with you guys saying that Michael Bay had his Lords of the Rings moment, because now I'm thinking, Will Smith playing Gollum? Ah! <laughs> Yes. So there we go. I, I don't know quite how to follow that, so I, I shan't even bother. Uh, no, but uh, we have uh, things upcoming, of course, um, m most notably, you know, 2004. That'll be there soon. Do you realise, fellas, that, that means that once we've done 2004, yeah. five left until yes. the end of the road. Indeed. So there we go. That's, uh, we'll, that's have to, we'll have to pad it out more than a Pete Jackson film. Yes, yeah, so 2004. Yeah, well, that's what it'll be. We'll do 2003, and then we'll get to 2009, and it'll have to be two parts we'll, over we'll be, separate Christmases. And after just that, sort of... We've got to go back, and we've got to do the seven, you know, all the 70s we didn't do, but also throw in as much as the 60s as we can, because this is our last yes. opportunity to do so. Uh, we're definitely in the 2000s now, well into it. We are. So uh, for now, we'll it's say... getting crowded as well. Yeah. There's a lot of films. So for now, we'll say, I suppose, to be continued. Bye. Goodbye. Oh, I hate cliffhangers.
The spoily lady turned out to be a bit of a bust for a number of reasons, and she will not be advising us in the future. However, all is not lost. I stole her handbag. Now, let's see what we have here. Oh, nothing but a note saying the next thing Leah would do is start a discussion on the films of 2003. Hmm. Uh, tell me, Leo, is there something you'd like to talk about? Oh, yes, there is something I would like to talk about. Um, I, I seem to remember the 2000... Oh, yeah, didn't see that coming. No, spoiler lady didn't prepare us for that. It's all right, just a warning that the zombies are at the gates. Oh, okay. We're okay. <sighs> Fucking control. Right, let, let, shall we try that again? Yes. <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, <laughs>